Our goal hasn't changed since 2009. We support, promote, engage, and inspire the arts community by igniting the ghost light that shines on the stages of the up-and-coming, the unsung heroes, the brilliant writers, and the dynamic designers. Stay tuned. Rep Radio is on the air. Welcome to Rep Radio. I'm your host, Darnell Radford, and today I am uh, in South Philadelphia. (laughs) (laughs) I'm at the home of 1812 Productions and 11th Hour Hour Theater Company and Theater Exile and, uh, what is it? Leah Stein. Leah Stein. Leah Stein. Who else is in here? Headlong. Headlong. And Headlong. yeah, it's like an unassuming school building, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of uh, interesting work uh, coming in and out of this space, and uh, today is going to be kind of like a, a, a roundtable, roundtable discussion. Um, so, Michael Hollinger of uh, Hollinger fame, <laughs> <laughs> trademark, has uh, uh, quite a handful of, of plays in circulation right now, specifically in Philadelphia. Um, uh, starting at the beginning of the season with Red Herring uh, at, at Act Two Playhouse, um, and then uh, Touch Tones at Arden Theater Company, and then Sing the Body Electric at Theater Exile, and Hope and Gravity at 1812. And um, I'm at the table with some amazing representatives, and I wanted them introduce themselves. I'm David Bradley. I got to direct Red Herring at Act Two earlier in the fall. I'm Deborah Block. I got to direct Sing the Body Electric at Theater Exile. I'm Jen Childs. I got to direct Hope and Gravity at 1812 Productions. And I'm Michael Hollinger. I got to play in the sandbox with all these wonderful directors this season. (laughs) Oh, my God, Michael's here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm always interested in what, uh, I mean, obviously the work is good. (laughs) Uh, But I'm always interested in what makes... What makes it into a season and why? So I'll, I will pitch that to, uh, uh, to Deb and Jen. Um, what, I mean, why, why did you decide to add these two pieces, uh, these pieces to your seasons? Well, as you know, we like to dive into what makes a person a person and Michael's voice is part of Philadelphia, and we like to reflect the Philadelphia experience. And even though this play doesn't take place there, Michael's voice was incredibly important to us. And I have been following Michael's career for many decades now and just absolutely loving his work. And we've been fortunate enough to have some of his work in our development series. And in a moment of boldness and gutsiness, I called him up and asked about this play, and, and we, were, we were talking about doing it in exile, and I was thrilled that he was allowing us to do this, and it was sort of a two years in, in the making mm-hmm. um, to bring it around. So we've, as we sort of built the season around this, 
piece, knowing that we were going to have this beautiful, subtle, uh, explosive experience of a group of characters. And may I tack on to that, uh, this is Michael, uh, that in fact Hope and Gravity, which just opened under Jen's direction, was received a developmental reading at Theater Exile early, early on under the title of Ups and Downs with mm-hmm. several scenes that are no longer there and several scenes that were not there then that are there now in the play. So it is very symbiotic, uh, these, the way these companies have worked together. Um, I have also followed Michael's career for decades. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be in the first production of Red Herring when it happened at the Arden. And um, I, I don't know, I have long been an admirer of Michael's work, the music, the comedy, the heart that's in it. Um, and we had lunch at the diner, and I said, we should do a Michael Hollinger play. <laughs> and he said, uh, yeah, how about this one? And I had read it before when it was still called Ups and Downs several years ago. And in reading it this time, there's just something about the sort of moment right now. I feel like um, it's a time of great hope and gravity in our world mm-hmm. <laughs> and on a daily basis. And, you know, we do This Is The Week That Is every year, which allows us to kind of tackle those national issues and political issues head on and uh, very specifically. But the idea of taking a look at the the quieter, more day-to-day um hope and gravity of all of our lives felt like a really necessary and interesting exercise as a way to kind of balance um, the other things in our the other things in our season and it it's got a huge amount of heart as all of Michael's work does and uh, I think that was just the right it was the right way to close our season so. Yeah. great uh, so we're going to swing back to the beginning of the season and uh, talk to David about red herring um, so when it, whenever I, um, I'm thinking about the, the productions that are coming up, I'm thinking about uh, the time frame, like, uh, you know, where we are in society, you know, it's 2017, 2018 season, and this piece takes place in uh, 1952, mm-hmm. correct? Uh, so uh, the first thing I think is why now, sort of, or how does this piece fit into today? And I'm wondering if you could uh, add to that. The, the temptation is to be glib and say, what do you mean 1952? Michael's play is about people suspecting that the Russians are infiltrating our society and having undue influence on us. And who, you know, all you have to do is, you know, listen to Rudy Giuliani and uh, you're, you're tapped right into that. Um, the larger thing, really, that Red Herring, I think, gets at is... Um, in a funny way, the dance of doubt and certainty, I think. Um, and we're at a time now where there are people who are very certain about things, mm-hmm. but there's also a lot of doubt. And, and at the heart of this play are three couples who are trying to figure out how to be in love with each other and whom can they trust and what can they trust and what's the leap of faith in falling in love, uh, what's involved in that. Um, and the fact that they're all dented. One of the best lines in the play is, is uh, the, the supporting character says to the kind of the lead woman, the woman that Jen played uh, years ago, you two belong together, you're broke in all the same places. Hmm. And that idea of nothing is made of perfect holes. Uh, 
And we are right now in a time of, I think, real brokenness in a lot of ways in our society. And yet, like Jen said, we keep wanting to hope. Yeah. Which is what the act of falling in love is, mm-hmm. is acknowledging brokenness and leaping into into what can endure. And I think that's really what Red Herring's about, which is, I think, I, and I hope, going to enable it to be produced again and again and again, because we're never going to fall out of those things. Yeah. I, I always find it interesting, like, I mean, it's sort of like the go-to to say, oh, it's period piece, because we know specifically what time frame it's in. But then we draw these comparisons to today with almost everything. And we can always find uh, it's like we haven't solved that problem yet, whatever, whatever the problem is that sets us in a particular period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is continuous relevance in the pieces because we just find it. We're, we're looking for it. And as theater goers, we're, we're going into the theater looking to... Uh, find some sort of relevance to today in whatever we're sitting down with. It's, it's the hope. Mm-hmm. Um, as, I, as I prepare for a long day of Angels in America mm. in New York, <laughs> trying to find the relevance of that in, in that piece that is very specifically placed as well. Mm. Um, so, well, what's so great, I mean, this is, I think about, about a piece that's set in a historical period is that you, as time goes by, if it has the good fortune of remaining in the canon, remaining produced, we get more and more layers that are in, encased in it. So that, you know, the crucible is always about the witch hunts in the 17th century, but it's also about the 1950s. And now it's about the era that it's in, too. Mm-hmm. And so those layers just become more complex and more interesting. Yeah. Uh, so we'll keep it here with you, and we'll talk about touch tones. Um, now, Touch Tones is set in 1999, mm-hmm. and uh, so tell us a little bit about it. You'll be the ambassador for that one. <laughs> yeah, so Touch Tones has two worlds that kind of collide. We follow a couple, uh, Christine and Justin, who met at chastity camp uh, <laughs> when they were teenagers and took a vow of abstinence. They got together, they wound up getting engaged, and five years later, they are still abstinent. Uh, and about to be married in a couple of months. And they're, uh, you know, a hot night for them is sitting on the same couch a couple of feet apart and, <laughs> and uh, talking to each other in ways that get each other excited but completely hands-off. Um, when Christine suggests that they're on their way to marriage, they're engaged, they're sure they're the ones for each other, that perhaps they could bump up <laughs> the deadline of their actually uh, losing their shared virginities, Justin says, hold the line, keep the faith, It's just a couple of months away, and you can get married in your white dress with honor. Uh, Shortly afterwards, she discovers on his phone a a mysterious number for someone named Mercedes, who, when she quickly finds out, is a a phone sex operator at a place called Touchtones. And she enters this world, uh, discovering all kinds of things about Justin, but also all kinds of things about herself. (laughs) And then a lot of singing and dancing. A lot of singing and dancing. (laughs) (laughs) I was, uh, if with all four, if, if all four directors were here, I was going to ask, is there a, is there a Hollinger lens <laughs> that you could see? First of all, did you all get a chance to see all of the pieces? Well, not, not Well, yet. Hope and Gravity yeah. just opened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I haven't seen yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, I got to see touch phones, but no. not the not yeah. the May plays. And yeah. I, 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 <laughs> and I, no. yeah. 
And because he's in the room here, it's kind of putting me on the spot. Have you have you have you sensed any sort of signature elements in a Michael Hollinger piece? I mean, I haven't seen these, but I've seen others of Michael's plays, and I saw Touchstone. I would start by something Michael said when I asked him where Red Herring came from in his process, and he says he sometimes sort of sees this object or thing in a distance and then tries to figure out how he brings himself to that. Yeah. So I think what you get, my sense in Michael's plays, is what I heard Chaim Potok once describe as a particular world. Potok said you kind of can't make up your mind about whether you like a piece of literature until you've spent enough time in its particular world. And I think what Michael creates are these kind of particular worlds that aren't necessarily something you might immediately identify with. I mean, think of incorruptible, uh, you know, which is, what, 12th century or like yeah. in the yeah. monastery. Uh, Opus is, you know, it's contemporary, but it's the world of string quartet. Mm-hmm. Um, Red Herring is 1952. Um, Touchstones is phone sex operators in 1999. So that, that, I think, is very distinctive. I also think Michael does a kind of very tight construction mm-hmm. in his plays. And interlo- I mean, Red Herring is 20-plus scenes that have to move fast. And, and there, you know, he, he's a musician trained as a, trained as a violist. Mm-hmm. And there's a musicality and a musical kind of composition structure that I think infuses his plays. Mm-hmm. I would definitely agree with the musicality of, of that. Do you, can I ask these guys? Yes. Do you, do you, do you think that there's like, uh, there's characters that, that want to be better? Yeah. That want something more and are struggling to yeah. be yeah. something. I, I've, I felt that that was a, a driving force yeah. of many of your characters. Hmm. Yeah. Looking for connection. Yeah. The characters looking and it's all obstacles of how they can, how they can come together, how they can meet each other, how they can see each other. One of my favorite scenes in Red Herring, I feel like there's an echo scene of it in Hope and Gravity, mm-hmm. is between two strangers at a bar, mm-hmm. a yeah. younger woman and an older man, and the same thing happens, not the same thing, but it is a similar construction in Hope mm-hmm. and Gravity, um, but it's two strangers, younger woman, older man in an elevator, and the sort of uh, the things that we share with strangers, the, um, the ways that we are allowed to be honest with people that we will never see mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. that we're not allowed to be honest with our, or we don't choose to be honest with people that we know mm-hmm. very well. Yeah. Um, and, and through that, finding connection, you know, it's, I, I feel like in all of the plays, there's, there's always a scene where there are two people who are supposed to be together who are not connecting, and two people who've just <laughs> met who are connecting very deeply. <laughs> um, and uh, there's... Right. And I, the music as well, I feel like the script is a score, you know, Um, it's down to the, a beat is this long and a pause is this long. And it's amazing. I mean, I consider myself a a funny person and knowledgeable of comedy and there'd be times when I'm like, ah, the scene's not working, what's going on? And then I look and I was like, oh, because I didn't follow Michael's direction, I'm not playing my notes. Damn it. Damn you. Oh, no. I think there's also... Okay. I was going to say, that happened in our rehearsal, too. Yeah. It's like, oh, Deb, did you notice what it said there? And the, I'm like, yeah, thank you for reading the stage direction. <laughs> Punctuation, yeah. right? Like, yeah. oh, no, no, it's a comma. And yeah. that okay. that yeah. might matter. I think there's also, I mean, I'm thinking even way back to an early play of Michael's called Tiny Island, and then I'm thinking of Touchstones and Red Herring. I think there's something where the past, the past lurks 
or can come back and get you. And, and there is almost like, it's, it's almost like a musical theme playing in the background that's going to surface up. I mean, that happens in Touchstones where, I mean, it's a, it's a nearer past, but this character's had this secret life of calling this fun sex business. Uh, and then his fiance goes and becomes the operator. Yeah. You know, Red Herring, there's a big secret that gets revealed of Maggie's marriage. Tiny Island, these sisters have this haunted past. So I think there's something about, you know, the past is, is never is never past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's riding along with us. Yeah, it always comes back to home. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sing the body electric. Uh, <laughs> so I... I I got the opportunity to see that last week. Um, there were uh, th- that's an in- that's an interesting dynamic between those characters. Um, the um, I'm gonna ruin the names here. I like the mother and the father. Okay, as Lloyd and what's Doris. the mother's name? Doris. Uh, how how they connect? They connect for a totally different reason. Um, because she's trying to get help for her daughter. And, um, and through that, like you'd say, you're talking about the honesty of strangers. They, they become really open with each other, that they, that they both have um, flaws that they're trying to work through. I mean, he finds her, uh, Lloyd, Lloyd finds her. Um, wait, did I get this right? Yeah. Lloyd. Yes, Lloyd finds her. Lloyd finds, finds her, her to, from from the uh, advertisement. To advertising to help her son, to help yeah. his son. Yeah. And then the reciprocal happens where he reaches out to her. Uh, she reaches out to to him to help her daughter. Mm-hmm. And it, again, it's sort of what you were talking about the the strangers mm-hmm. needing each other mm-hmm. in a moment in time, and the the adults and the, it happens with both the adults and the children. In, in different ways, but they need each other. They they collide. They're drawn to each other. They're what? How did? What was the the phrase in in red hair? They're, they're they're broken all the same places. That's mm. right. And I really feel that that mm-hmm. happens in this play, mm. and it is it creates an explosion. Yeah. Man. Well, ha- halfway through, because of the uh, the sessions, um, the um, group therapy, the group therapy sessions. I was sitting there, and I'm thinking, like, a moth to a flame. Mm-hmm. Was that intentional, or am I just filling that in? Yeah, the the metaphor of, of light and our attraction to light and wanting to feel electrified in your body, which mm-hmm. uh, certainly recalls the title and the poem uh, by Walt Whitman, all of those things emerged early, and kind of the moth to the flame is probably the one specific metaphor that I didn't explicitly state, mm-hmm. mostly because there's a lot of metaphor going on in the play. I was cautious not to bludgeon people over the head with it, so yeah. hopefully you arrive at it yourself as an audience member. Uh, but yes, very much, and the character of Jess in particular is, well, I would say both Jess and Lloyd are pursuing... <laughs> Uh, Blake and Doris, respectively, in ways that they don't necessarily understand. The whole notion is that we, uh, there's a song by Paul Simon, that the title of which is How the Heart Approaches What It Yearns, um, how, how there's a kind of pull uh, towards others mm-hmm. that we know we must connect with in some way. And that we can tell ourselves intellectually why that is. Well, I really like 
the fact that they're so interested in politics. Right? <laughs> yeah. But I do think that that's largely on an unconscious level. Yeah. And so unconsciousness in the way that these characters uh, move towards each other and also are repelled by each other at various points in the play is very much part of that movement. Yeah. I, th I thought her uh, curiosity in Blake was was interesting because it, it just feels like, it, it felt like, uh, you know, so I heard a rumor and I'm a student mm -hmm. at the school. I'm just going to fish and see how much information mm -hmm. I can get. But there's definitely this curiosity that's somewhat unexplained mm -hmm. in her where we can't figure out, like, but, but why? Why are you so interested? Why do you want to know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's what keeps us watching. I mean, we're, we're watching saying, I wonder, are we going to get clarity, like a flat-out answer as to what she wanted. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's just it's just there. And she's just... I think we're, we're, we end up walking out kind of having uh, more of her curiosity in hmm. the whole thing. Hmm. And thinking about it and just how it ends where you know she does her, her turn and then we see... It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm trying to get to the point. And then when everybody dies, it is uh, seriously tragic, but you have to come for the ride. It's the journey. <laughs> um, so, uh, you're, so you're, you're Philadelphian, and, uh, and we're all here. I mean, you're local and accessible. And, and I always think that it's an interesting benefit to be able to work with the playwright. Um, especially on new pieces, um, did you were, did you have any involvement with red herring this time as well? Really, a little, and mostly early. Um, uh, David and I talked early on about a lot of the historical stuff in it, early conceptual ideas that he had. He shared design ideas with me. Um, he's so freaking smart that, <laughs> you know, I, I mostly just said, that sounds great. That looks great. Rock on. Um, it gave me an opportunity to just, uh, give him a couple of things to, to note. Like I've seen a lot of productions of the play to say this part's hard and here's why mm -hmm. this part, you're going to have to save the play. Right. Cause you know, cause he didn't write it as well as he could. <laughs> um, and just some other things like that. But, um, and then I was able to see a couple of run throughs at really key junctures, first day of rehearsal, all of those things. But mm -hmm. mostly uh, to say, you guys look great, you sound great, you're doing great, see ya, <laughs> yeah. and then come back. And that was, uh, I might have been more involved had I not been rehearsing a brand new world premiere musical at yeah. the same time. But I got to tell you, they, they did not need me. I could have mm -hmm. been posthumous. <laughs> and, then you, and then you get to this time frame, and you're like, I have two wives I have to deal with. Yeah, well, thank, thank you very in the same much building. putting yourself in the same building, yeah. because that overlap in rehearsal was probably about two or more weeks, two and a half weeks in the same building. So I was able to bounce between floors. Yeah. Uh, they play well together, so mm -hmm. nobody, nobody got proprietary. And actually, I, I know enough now when to get out of the room. Mm -hmm. um, I early on as a playwright, I stuck around longer, and it was frustrating for me because I wanted the actors to get to their finished draft mm -hmm. and ignore the fact that it took me twelve or twenty drafts. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, so I I try to stick around while I'm most useful, which is when we're reading around a table or initially putting scenes up, talking about them, um, and then I get out of the way because people need to forget get the words wrong and bump into the furniture. Yeah, and the directors need to make their drafts, and the actors need to make their drafts, and mm -hmm. it's useful to just appear and then come back and say, show me, 
your draft. And yeah. we'll talk about it. And I think the rhythm worked well. They may tell you otherwise, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, Hope and Gravity is a, is a collection. Mm-hmm. A collection of shorts... Well, it's really not. It is is one thing. It is both a wave and a particle. (laughs) The the whole purpose is that I wanted to create a piece that felt like it was constructed of nine different scenes that could stand alone, but that, in fact, as you move through the play, you find deeper and deeper connections between characters, sometimes encountering each other for the first time or second time, Mm -hmm. and that you discover that although it seems as though you're watching something that is nine discrete scenes, you're actually watching one big thing, like kind of a seven-course meal in a way. And, you know, and Angels in America, which you referenced earlier, I think has influenced all playwrights that have come after Kushner Mm -hmm. because of the way he takes an array of characters in their own spheres and then begins to throw them together outside of their domains. And when they collide with their opposite charge, so to speak, dynamic things happen. What happens when Roy Cohn hangs out with Belize? What happens when Mrs. Pitt, you know, hangs out with, with Harper or with Pryor, Mm -hmm. that's really dynamic. And I certainly was impressed by Angels in America early on and Red Herring owes a debt to that and Hope and Gravity owes a debt to that. I thought about it until just now and now I really get that. I mean, because one of the things I've been reading about Angels in America since it's coming back, Mm -hmm. like you, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do the marathon in in a few weeks, um, is that for as epic a play as it is, it is mostly two and three person scenes. Yeah. So this is like the great epic really of the last 50 years in American theater and it is primarily made up of two or three person scenes like mm-hmm. Red Herring, like Hope and Gravity and, and that's I think a real gift of how do you make the intimate large, which I think is what, Michael, you're after in your plays, is this kind of thing that's, you know, uh, Teresa Rebic said that she heard Francis Ford Coppola say, they they worked on something together, and he kept saying, how can we make this more epic? What can we do to make this more epic without turning it into The Godfather or something? But I think that's kind of what you're after. I think that's right, too. And the the other similarity, which is something that Kushner loves, which is using actor doubling the way mm-hmm. that actors are doubled between characters to create resonance and irony. Mm-hmm. That we see men play women, we see women play men, we see people of opposite types embodied in the same body. Yeah. And that happens in Red Herring and that also happens in Hope and Gravity. Not mm-hmm. Sing the Body Electric, everybody mm-hmm. plays one role, <laughs> which is its own challenge and joy. But, yeah. um, it, because, because we're talking about these four pieces, uh, is there a through line in these at all? Are they tied? Are they connected at all? Are they in, in the same world? These people would know better than I would. <laughs> um, I, I, do, I do think the things that they have said are, are right in terms of the search for connection, in terms of, the, of people's desire to, to be better people, mm-hmm. um, to improve. I do think that musicality is important to me, but but my aim always is how can I be as different as possible in the next thing I write mm-hmm. than the last thing I wrote. So I'm trying to go as far afield from the last thing, and mm-hmm. any similarities are unintentional, <laughs> even the quoting of Walt Whitman and the, the, the two plays currently running. So in a way, it's kind of like a, a reveal, I guess, a Rorschach test or something, where I, you know, I unintentionally will reveal my current obsessions because they show up in the plays, but yeah. I don't know. Um, uh, 
because of the time frame they were in, can we talk about the women in these plays? Mm-hmm. And uh, what what your thoughts are? What what your thoughts were about these characters as you approach them uh, in this season, in this age of Me Too, and uh, and things like that. And I, I'll put this to every yeah. put this to everyone. Well, I, mean, I mean, like, uh, are are they uh, like what? What sort of? Uh, I don't know if examples are the right word. Or well, I'd say in Sing the Body Electric, there's three women. They're all strong in very different ways, mm-hmm. very very different ways, and they're also all broken yeah. in different ways. Um, but there's none of them are standing still. Mm-hmm. All of them are moving engines towards something. Some of them move, they all move at different paces. Um, and and the, there's a different engine in each of them. But n- not one of them would be a, a woman that th- there is no traditional 1950s sort of... Yes. That's feminine energy, <laughs> wifey sort of energy here. Yeah. They are all, albeit broken, but strong, mm-hmm. and and have no vision other than saving themselves. Yeah, yeah. I think probably the same could be said about the women in Hope and Gravity. I I think that there are um, there's two women in the play, and they play four, a total of four characters. And um, again, also broken, flawed, um, people trying to be better, trying to be, even one of them says, I want to be good at one, <laughs> at one point. Um, I will say that f- for me, the, the thing that's changed is uh, the lens through which we view everything. I think just, I don't know if you all experience this as directors, but the conversation in the room is a little bit Different. It suddenly becomes super important to go. All right, how do we, you know, for example, a seduction scene? Um, there are a couple of seduction scenes in Hope and Gravity, and where you go, okay, how do we make sure that this is? How do we make sure that this is is as it is written a consensual thing? And so it's taking those extra steps with. Uh, with the visuals that you create, with the intentions that you discuss with the actor, how people approach and deal with each other, that uh, that you make it, it does not become something that feels, and that distances the audience in any way because they feel something mm-hmm. odd about it. You know, I think that for me is a new lens. I, I can imagine, you know, looking at some of these scenes, I don't know, five, six years ago, and sort of going like, yeah, he says that, she does this, it's great. Mm-hmm. But there's just a little bit more care that needs to be taken right now, I think, in a good way. Mm-hmm. In a good way. Red Herring is set in the 50s, yeah. so you actually have it. But, but interesting, I mean, but it was written in, you know, 99 to 2001 over the time. The three female protagonists are all rule breakers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then there are the supporting women who kind of are the satire of the 50s. You know, you have Joe McCarthy's wife who, who in one scene is sort of beating oatmeal cookie batter in a kind of Betty Crocker emblem of sexual repression that is just sort of really kind of fabulous. And then Mrs. Van Nostren who runs a bridal shop that we just 
kept referring to as Marriage Incorporated. I mean, she was the sort of the USS marriage of frigate that was unstoppable. But the other women really all break rules. And Maggie, the woman Jen played in the first production, I mean, the play begins with a woman going to work. With, a, with her boyfriend in bed and a woman going to work, which is an interesting upending. And very early on, Rachel Camp found this little thing that I think is a little bit this modern lens there. The guy's trying to get the woman before she goes to work to sit down so he can yeah. propose marriage to her. And there's this bing, bing, you know, there's a lot of rat-a-tat-tat, like Tracy Hepburn kind of thought. And he goes, sit. He points at that sit. And Rachel just, in an early rehearsal, did this thing where she just cocked her head at him. Like, what am I, your dog? You're... And he just, and Charlie Del Marcel just, in the moment, just played it, like, put his hands up, like, sorry, would you please sit? And it was this moment of 2017 sitting on top of 1952 at the same time. Yeah. And it was, per but it was also perfect for those two characters and who they were in 1952, that it was like, okay, there it is, rules of engagement. This is not your typical couple and that what's great about that is that was two actors just doing their thing in the moment that then layered the story yeah, yeah. Uh, so we had a special event at Touchtones a special event? Yeah, there was a there was a surprise. Oh, that, that special event. Yeah, speak, speaking of proposals. Yeah, yes. I mean, we're, we're, we're watching we're watching this piece about uh about the beginnings of a of a marriage, and then uh, we get we get it in real life. Yes, Michael <laughs> Darty uh, proposed to Alex Kuyper on stage at, at, after the curtain call, and <laughs> apparently went viral. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> it was a pretty cool moment, and they are still engaged. Yes, uh, <laughs> on their way to getting married. So yeah, that was kind of a thrill, and it's it's not the first time that people have gotten together in the course of working on. Shows of mine and huh? Mike and Alex worked together for the first time in Incorruptible back mm -hmm. in uh, yeah. 2004. Side business. Well, one just hopes it, it all goes well. But it was, <laughs> um, yeah, it was a wonderful thing and uh, and 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 very connected to the themes of the play. It felt, I mean, you could get engaged after anything. You could mm -hmm. get engaged after the Crucible. <laughs> um, but it, it, it felt particularly, okay. Okay. it felt poignant because the way, the trajectory of these two characters, they played lovers and fiancés in the play, their trajectory is to begin together uh, but in a, in a couple that is maintained through lies, to be exploded as far apart as possible and to somehow make themselves arrive back at the same place, but anew and with candor and honesty. And the, the song that they sing together is See Me. It's as simple a lyric as you could mm -hmm. possibly say, but it's basically saying, I strip away all artifice and I ask you to see me in my metaphorical nakedness, which is kind of interesting in that Red Herring has mm -hmm. a very similar moment where char characters are marrying them each other and themselves in a Quaker wedding without any officiant, without any frou-frou, uh, just saying, here I am, I am human with, with you in my brokenness, yeah. which I guess is that thread that we're <laughs> looking at. Yeah. Uh, have there, uh, and so far for for uh, Hope and Gravity, have there been any uh, sort of unique or just sort of interesting or standing out um, audience responses uh, from these pieces this season? 
Well, I know we've had a number of visceral responses, like wows and gasps. And yeah. the, you know, so that's that's been wonderful. And I also, we had this wonderful talk back where we were talking about the show, and they also brought up Hope and Gravity. <laughs> I paid them well. No, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was because people are following Michael's work, and that's mm-hmm. and that's that's great. But I, I, I don't know if there's. We've had all sorts of responses from from people being mad at characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely had some people that were mad at characters, but most part people who are fascinated by the subtlety and want to know more and and mm-hmm. and like I said that we've had a number of at the end of the play like wow you know yeah. just mm-hmm. just sort of uh aspiration an aspir response you know mm-hmm. yeah so no yeah. marriage proposals no marriage proposals <laughs> uh, for us either I, I think one of the great things about hope and gravity is not only are the, these not only is it a wave and a particle, but it is also a great puzzle for the audience because the scenes are presented out of order. There's an awful lot of listening and work that the audience has to do to put things together. So it's been wonderful, you know, the lights go up for intermission and immediately there's this, you know, people going, now what this is, you know, and figuring things out. And as Michael said yesterday at opening, he's, we're both realizing there's a lot of seed planting in the first act and payoff in the, and bloom in the second mm. act. Um, and it's wonderful to listen to the penny drop for people as they make these connections and get things. Mm. Um, so that's, that's been the overwhelming sort of uh, joyous response. Yeah. So far. And, uh, and Ambler is very much our community, but it's, it's so far on the edge. So I'm always, I'm always I know, but it's a big region. <laughs> whenever, whenever I think of hopping the train, I'm always like, is you know, would something, would something that is on stage uh, downtown be different as we step out of out of Center City? I don't know. I think something that's on stage downtown is different Wednesday night than it is Thursday yeah, night, yeah. for one thing. So there, you know, and and I I feel like, you know, we're a good 30 to 40 years in mm-hmm. to a rich regional theater scene. I mean, the thing that, that's kind of really cool about Act Two is this is a theater that has succeeded because that particular community and region really wanted it. Mm-hmm. So it's, and, and has really embraced it. One of the great things is you're really close to the stage. The audience is really mm-hmm. close to the stage there. So um, I think what the Red Herring actors loved was the the doubling of their lines because people would repeat the punchlines. They enjoyed them. they enjoyed them so much. And you know, row G is like the back of the theater. And so, you know, it's like 125, 150 seat. I, I forget the size. 125, 30, 130. 130. So you're close. Mm-hmm. And so you knew that you were in the dance with the audience. And, I mean, the nights I saw it, I, I would also kind of note the the, uh, the aerobicism of the laughter because you would either have the bend-overers or you'd have the head-backers. And it was, you know, it was a good stretch either way along the spinal column. Um, and I think the actors could feed off that. So it was a, it, it almost, I think, in a comedy there has almost a club feel where you're really right there understanding how the audience is experiencing it, which is pretty cool for a play that TikToks quickly like Michael's and has a lot of laughs embedded through. In fact, sometimes I would be going, you got to be quiet because the next one's even funnier. (laughs) And um, 
a noticeable visual is the intimacy of the of the productions in all of and in, in all of these productions. Um, Touchtones is in the Arcadia. Oh wait, which one's the yeah, Arcadia? Yeah. Arcadia, and um, then uh, Body Electrics at the Latvian Society, mm-hmm. and um, Hope and Gravity is at uh, Plays and Players. But its design is intimate. So we're kind of forgetting that we're in this huge space. Well, I would say that it's intimate and big <laughs> and fast. Yeah, I mean yeah. the it's uh, a wave and a particle. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, those those contradictions. I mean, I, I the individual scenes feel intimate and often are feel like they're in these little jewel boxes that mm-hmm. are revealed to us. But in the transitions, the beautiful design of Jorgen Cousineau uh, with Jen's concept of using the entire aperture of the plays and players stage. Uh, as a projection screen and then these doors opening. It's not revealing too much. It's just really cool. Uh, And so having this experience of intimate connection between a couple of actors and then a transition where the sound is vast and the images are vast uh, is a really cool fluctuation Mm -hmm. in the production. Um, So as directors and and artistic directors and as writers, um, do you... Are there any, are there themes right now that present a sense of urgency for for you uh, artistically and uh, for the stage as as you move forward? Mm-hmm. I... Wow, <laughs> that's a that's a big question. I mean, especially coming from a comedy theater company, I feel like uh, I feel like joy and hope are. I feel like that's part of my imperative is to make sure that there's uh, that there, where there is despair hope you mm-hmm. know where there is darkness light where there is sadness joy mm-hmm. um, that that's uh, there's an imperative to help provide that for people because sometimes I, I feel like right now there's there's an awful lot of gravity out there and um, and I feel personally exhausted sometimes mm-hmm. and I think that a part of uh, what our mission is is being able to f- provide a little bit of sustenance that allows, you know, if I come and have a good laugh, I can wake up the next morning and call my congressman about something, <laughs> um, you know. Yeah. And so there's that, but also just thematically, um, the importance of of being with other people and looking to other people. One of the reason that I love the stranger scenes is that we all need each other in this world so much more than we know or are able to articulate and what a wonderful you know I I always say that I do theater to show my daughter what's possible and to be Mm -hmm. able to look at stories that are happening up there and go like look what's possible in the world Mm -hmm. and you know that compassion between strangers is possible is I think a a really wonderful compassion and understanding is a a great thing to remind ourselves that that is possible in these days Mm -hmm. I think the goal of Theater Exile is to help people find their footing when the world underneath them is moving so much and to give them stories that help sort of wind your way through through this very mercurial time that we're in. I, I feel existentially confused right now. Not just the weather, but our world. Yeah. Yeah. The rules are changing. And so... I think that's what we're trying to do is help people get their footing and our audiences are so smart and they're going to be the ones that 
make the world a better place. And so if there's anything we can do with our stories that help them think and engage in dialogue so that they can go out there and 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 change the world, yeah. you know, make the world better and safe for my son. Thank you. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but that's what I think we do with the stories and like sort of the tearing open of the human condition because you know, it's like when you go out on a boat and you've been on land, like you you find new muscles. Well, I feel like humans are strong and resilient and like I think motivated by hope or we would lay down and die of the horrors of the world. And so, but sometimes we have to be reminded that there's other muscles in there that maybe we haven't been using mm. in sort of to find out where our strength is so that we can go on and again, make the world better. Yeah. Well, all such good things. <laughs> um, I think there's a quality of paying attention that the that a theater experience asks that's different than a lot of the ways we both pay attention and are asked to pay attention in today's world, which mm -hmm. moves really fast and which has a kind of bombardment. And I think creating spaces where people can come together and pay a kind of sustained attention to things that are different than their experience, which I think is also incredibly important. I mean, you know, we get turned on by stories because a lot of, I mean, yes, we recognize ourselves in them, but a lot of times we we like going into those particular worlds. And we need to know how to do that more and more because I think what, what we're wrestling with a lot in society is how do we embrace difference mm -hmm. and honor difference and honor somebody, whether it's a stranger or someone we think we know, but here has seen me transparently, like Michael said about the characters in Touchstones, transparently as who I am. That active empathy... I think is what is at the core of what being in a theater with artists telling a story in whatever form. I, I, I've kind of done a really wild genre hump jumping this season of doing Red Herring and then The Diary of Anne Frank and then I just did Noises Off <laughs> in, in Indiana Rep. I mean, going from Anne Frank to Noises Off is about as 180 as you get. And I would say I want to be in a world that's telling both because that activates that activates the fullness of who we are. And I think that's what theater can ask us to do, is to activate the fullness of who we are and honor the fullness of the people we live with. Yeah. And the writer's perspective? Well, you know, one of the things I, had, I admired about uh, working with all four directors this season, all of whom are white, is that there was really a strong desire to imperative to cast as diversely and representatively as possible and as, as inclusively as possible. Some of these plays, you know, Red Herring was written a long time ago uh, before the notion of diversity and inclusion in my casting was in my consciousness. And, um, and as I work more... Uh, Recently in my work, I, I, and this is true of all the directors that I work with this season, am interested in making sure that we are all represented somehow, which doesn't mean that every single type of person is represented on stage at all times, but rather that our lens needs to be wider and more inclusive. And, so, and that was part of the audition process for all of these shows. Um, and, I mean, in some cases, as with touch tones, uh, it's, it's written very explicitly in terms of the, what the composition of the cast is. Now, in Hope and Gravity and Sing the Body Electric, it's recommended strongly in terms of the, the casting of the shows. And I think that, that seeing that, that feels like a fairly recent imperative that is being shared among theater makers across the city mm -hmm. uh, and is certainly part of a larger national movement, but something that uh, 
is very good and a long time coming. Hmm. All right. Uh, and to and to wrap this up, is there? We're going to put Michael on the spot. Is there anything that you would all like to say to Michael on the record? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for writing and sharing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean it's just that simple, and that uh, I'm so appreciative to be part of the creative process with you. Well, the feelings mutual. <laughs> yeah, I. I when in doubt, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for me making me laugh and making me cry, and making me think, and making me work really hard. Thanks for being generous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you like with, with my experience, Red Herring. You wrote a long time ago, and you could have said, "David, it, it's there on the page, and it works. It gets done a lot." Go. But it, talking with you, it, it was like you were present to the play yeah. again, and that's great. But also, I think you want to be a theater maker amidst the people who are making productions of your plays. And uh, it's fun to work with a writer like that. And I want to thank all of you for joining me today. Um, if, if you're listening, um, you, can, you can get a copy of Red Herring from Dramatist, which has been published. And uh, you can see Sing the Body Electric. It's on stage right now at the Latvian Society. And you can see Hope and Gravity at Plays and Players, uh, presented by 1812. And Michael Hollinger is here. It's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Find him at Villanova. They haven't figured out how to make me stop writing yet. So. Yeah. Uh, thank you for writing so much. That allowed for this type of conversation to be had. It's been a thrill. And uh, look forward to uh, experiencing more of your work and and everyone's work. So thank you, thank you all for taking the time today as we uh, brave this. Uh, I don't know what to call this weather. It's spring. It feels like <laughs> feels like the worst summer Sprummer. day in August. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It always reminds me of those, that episode of The Simpsons where he's like, this darn smarch weather. <laughs> <laughs> when the weather was like really cold and unreasonable and everything. But yes, thank you all for joining uh, me today. Um, there's the two uh, great pieces that you can experience live and uh, Red Herring, you can go get a copy and devour that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Open Gravity will be published this summer too. It's about to be published okay, by Drama Display Service. Okay. Great. All right. So, uh, yes, thanks again. This was truly a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Rep Radio continues to be inspired by our community and listeners like you. You can support our work through our fiscal sponsor, Fractured Atlas, and through our Patreon page. Visit repradio.org donate for more. Stay tuned. You know the rest.